Welcome back to another episode of Beautiful Adaptive Warrior. I'm your host, Angie User. It is time once again to unleash the warrior within you. Are you ready? Let's get started. So today I am joined with Dr. Judd Cummings. Welcome. Thank you. We are happy to have you here. Um, I want to go ahead and get started in letting everyone know that um, Dr. Cummings is my orthopedic surgeon who actually did my amputation two years ago. And um, uh, Dr. Cummings, if you could just tell uh, us about yourself, uh, your degree, your, your background, where, how long you've been a surgeon, where you've been a surgeon, if it hasn't all been here in Arizona, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I trained following medical school at Creighton University. I trained at the Campbell Clinic, which uh, just happens to be the uh, oldest orthopedic surgery training program in the country. So it's very steeped in tradition, um, well-known program. They uh, actually write, if you know, people read textbooks anymore. They actually write the textbooks for orthopedic surgery training. It's called Campbell's Operative Orthopedic Surgery. So I was fortunate to have an opportunity to train there and then did um, a post-fellowship, or I'm sorry, post-residency fellowship at uh, the University of Utah Huntsman Cancer Center for one year. That was additional fellowship training in uh, some of the oncologic applications of orthopedic surgery, which uh, had interested me and uh, is still uh, a fairly big part of my practice. Probably most of my current practice uh, revolves around joint replacement and limb salvage surgery. Uh, and then um, about 40 to 50% of it is, is oncologic related. And, and, and both of those avenues are areas where not only do we see people that are amputees, but, but, but take care of and, and uh, facilitate care for people who need uh, that as a procedure, upper and lower extremities. So when I first started practice, I was actually in Indiana um, at the University of Indiana as an assistant professor and uh, was on faculty there for uh, just over three years. We um, were from the West and had always wanted to try to get back this direction. So I had an opportunity to come to Phoenix about 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, and we've been here ever since. Great. And so you are, um, who are you with now? Yeah, we um, are part of the Honor Health healthcare system and uh, have been for about six months now. Prior to that, we, or I was part of a uh, private uh, practice, specialty orthopedic surgery, and we were recently acquired by the Honor Health uh, System, which is a local health system here in Phoenix. Well, and you said something about how you've done, you do like salvage surgeries. And and so that is where we met. I, I can't even tell you the year that was. It's been two years since my amputation. It was probably two years prior, a year prior to that, maybe in 2017 ish. Yeah. Yeah. And it, what was really wonderful, and what I've, I tell um, people that are listening, is that your medical team that you surround yourself with is extremely important because you need people that are there not just for that moment, but that can be there when you need help, have questions. And the first time I met you, we were, oh, I was knee deep, no pun intended, in horrible um, situations where I couldn't get, I couldn't get um, range of motion. Uh, I couldn't find anybody that 
could help me. A lot of people, a lot of doctors that wouldn't even touch me because they didn't want to handle somebody else's mess. Um, I found that that's a big thing. Um, sometimes I couldn't even see a doctor because they would hear who had already operated on me. And they said, well, if they can't help you, I can't. <laughs> and so for people listening, you know, sometimes you just can't take no for an answer. And um, my physical therapist, Sean um, Palmer, he is the one who suggested coming to see you because you had worked on another one of his patients. So he actually met me, which again, we talked, um, he was my very first guest speaker. Um, he went above and beyond as I think as a PT by coming with me to uh, a couple appointments, yours, yours was one of them. So he could take that medical knowledge that he saw day to day with me and translate it better than I could. And I remember going in, seeing you thinking, this is the one, this is the big ticket. He's going to fix me. I just remember leaving crushed because you told me there was nothing that could be done with the situation I was in with arthrofibrosis and where I had been. Do you remember, this is a while ago. Do you remember what it was that you saw that kind of told you that I was at the end of being able to fix this? Yeah. You know, so in the, in the, in the realm and the world of arthroplasty and joint replacement, oftentimes if patients are having problems, whether it be pain or limited mobility, we can identify an issue that's correctable. It may be an issue with the implant. It may be malpositioned, uh, maybe too big or too small. Patients may not have had adequate therapy. There may be um, underlying infection there's a number of things, right? And, and so, you know, if you, if you sort of think of a surgeon who's addressing these problems as, as kind of a, like a hunter, right? If you give a hunter a bow and arrow and say, okay, you know, do your thing, they've got to have a target, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense for someone to just shoot an arrow into the trees and hope that they hit something, right? Because 99 out of hundred times are not going to. And so we, you need a target. And in your case, there really wasn't anything that we could see that was abnormal in, in regards to the things that I've already listed. And so then it becomes an issue of, well, we can redo it and just hope for the best and fingers crossed. And I think you had kind of been down that road already, but that is sort of like the person with the bow and arrow, just shooting an arrow randomly into the trees and hoping that they hit a bird or an animal or something like that. And so the, all the things that are correctable, right, that we can fix, we had sort of checked off the list. And it seemed, right, that in your particular case, a lot of the pain was stemming from the fact that um, the knee was stiff. You know, how a joint functions really is a combination of two things. And people sort of forget this, right? It's not just the bearing surfaces, which in the case of a joint is articular cartilage and kind of the contact surfaces, or in the case of a joint that's been replaced, it's the bearing surfaces. So that's part of it, yes. But the other key thing that really dictates how a joint functions is the surrounding tissue and the soft tissue envelope that joint lives inside, whether that's joint capsule, whether it's muscles, tendons, ligaments, et cetera. And I think that in your case, that's where really your problem was. And unfortunately, those are things, that soft tissue envelope that, you know, with rare exception, um, we can't affect change in as it pertains to surgery. And you being a motivated person had been down the therapy road, right? To no end. So, you know, we look for things that we can, that we can target as correctable issues, right? When we're talking about painful joint replacements or revisions, and then in the absence of there being something that's identifiable that we can correct, then it becomes 
an issue of maybe there's something going on soft tissue or neurologic, you had sort of done everything that we could do really to try to improve that. And unfortunately, most of that's non-surgical and our therapists today are wonderful and they're great. But at the end of the day, um, you know, when you've sort of exhausted all options, which I think is where you were at, that's why I didn't really feel like we had much to offer from a joint sort of salvage process. Right. And that's interesting because then after that, I believe I did go and try one more avenue. And that was because we realized that um, for arthrofibrosis or hyperscarring, it, it seemed to get worse with every big surgery. Yeah. And, and the scar would lay down and lay down. I mean, it didn't matter how much PT I did and how dedicated I was and what I went through. Because I think I did PT literally for eight years solid. But I did try a scope. Yeah. They thought, well, maybe that's the one thing. And I, I, I asked Sean, am I crazy to try this? Cause it seems like we've done everything else. And he goes, no, it's the one thing you haven't tried. And it's very low invasive. Well, it ended up becoming very invasive because he couldn't get the scope in the hole because there was so much scar tissue. And mm. then when he, he had to open me all up again. Yeah. And then when he opened me up, he just started that whole process. He got all the scar tissue out and it just laid down really fast. That's what I think actually was the last thing that happened after seeing you. Well, I, was, I think that actually happened before seeing me. Did it? I think so. Because I can remember Maybe talking to you about it. I, I might be wrong too, but I, I remember talking to you about that. Maybe. And um, as sort of one of those things, right, that we could try or do. And, you know, there again, sort of check that one off the box, off the list. Maybe well. that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Because Sean was there. I mean, he was part of all that stuff that we, that I had gone through. He was, he was thinking outside the box every which way he could as a PT. Like I said, being around the right people that are actually fighting for you, not just during their office hours is awesome. I end up coming back to you about a year later or so with a completely different perspective. And, and, I, and I say that only because, and I, I want one of the reasons why I want to know that I had been over by you once before, just because he told me he couldn't help me at that point. Um, didn't mean that maybe he couldn't help me at this point. And, and that's where you go. I knew there was value um, in the way you worked. I trusted with all the medical professionals I've been around. I tend to trust those that I trust the most when they show me a path I can take or someone else I can see. I tend to trust them because they know better than I would in that respect. And Sean had the utmost respect for you. And it was evident um, by him coming to our meeting that first time. And I remember when I came back from our trip to Europe and I was literally throwing up on the plane all the way home. I had all the signs of a blood clot, but I had had a blood clot before and it didn't feel like a blood clot. So I ignored it. I thought I pulled a muscle in my calf. It was red. It was swollen. It was hot, but it was like that all the time. And so when I came back, my pain management doctor had said that he thought I had a blood clot go to the ER and I did. That was the moment I tell people that's when I knew that I couldn't do what I was doing anymore. And amputation had always been tucked in the back of my mind, whether it was a seed planted by another doctor or it was just something that I thought this may be the only way to get my life back. That's when I came to you the second time. Even though you told me the first time there was no way to salvage what I had, I came to you with a completely opposite request. And it was, can you amputate? Would you amputate? And you were my first one. I wanted to make sure I had opinions. Don't get me wrong. Everything, everybody needs to get second opinions, third opinions. You want to pick brains. You want to hear what people think. But you knew me the best of the, the three people I did go see. So I went to see you first. When I came in, what was your thoughts on 
on me asking for that big, I mean, that's a big ask. What was, what was going through your mind after you'd seen me before and now where I was at? Yes. Well, you know, you're right. It's a big ask. Um, you know, the interesting thing about amputation is um, it's, it's not necessarily a technically demanding procedure um, and, and trying to do some fancy, you know, limb salvage, joint salvage procedure is infinitely more complex and time consuming that time consuming then is an amputation to be honest with you. So it's really not the, it's not the, the sweat equity in the actual procedure, right? But it is a big ask certainly from a psychosocial perspective, right? And, you know, frankly, there's probably few doctors out there um, in the orthopedic realm that either have experience doing it or are willing to kind of go with patients down that road, right? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that have to be considered. So, so it is a big ask, you know, when someone brings it up, I think the main thing as the surgeon, right, is to ensure that the patient is, is well-informed. We've crossed off or crossed out all other alternatives, reasonable alternatives. And then at that point, right, if we've really done everything that we can do as a profession and the patient has been diligent in doing everything that we've asked them to do, and then even gone beyond that, right, then I think it's a very reasonable thing to consider. I mean, granted, the number of quote-unquote elective amputations that, that happen, right, are not many. I mean, most people that undergo an amputation are there because they have to be, right? It's trauma, it's a motor vehicle accident, it's some sort of penetrating trauma, gunshot wound or whatever, vascular injury, et cetera. And your case wasn't, right? You had no life-threatening conditions other than the fact that you had just zero quality of life and this thing had become really a, a burden for you. So yeah, it's a big ask, but I think it's very reasonable to consider when patients have sort of met that, that list of criteria. And then I think a huge part of that is sort of the patient buy-in. So if, if I'm having to convince the patient that this is the right thing to do, particularly in what we call an elective setting, then it's probably not going to go well. If you're having that conversation with someone who has a bad vascular problem and their leg is slowly dying anyway, even though they may not want to do it, it's the thing that they need to save their life. That's a different story. But in your case and, or someone like it, where it's, it really is essentially an elective procedure, the patient really has to be the one to at least be uh, interested themselves, right? And, and be bought in as much as the surgeon, because otherwise it's just, it's, it's probably not going to work. And you certainly were, right? I mean, that you sort of fit you know, all of the, all of the criteria, I think. Well, yeah. When, when I came in, I think I was, I was at my end of my rope. And like I said, the blood clot was the final straw. Cause the last thing I wanted to do was travel with my family and die on an airplane um, in front of my kids, you know, and that's, you know, you start, you start realizing, you start checking off in, in your own personal life. Well, I can't do that. Or I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. And then when my husband's like, well, maybe we just can't travel. And I was like, you know, we're getting towards retirement age. You're telling me now we can't even travel. So I'm not skiing, hiking, biking, walking. Now I'm not traveling. I'm like, so we're going to retire in front of the TV. That's just not my personality. And so, yeah, I definitely had the buy-in, but that doesn't mean it makes, makes it any easier. You know, I know that people that tragically lose their limb there, that was just taken from them. They had no, but I had like months to weigh the pros and cons and it, it eats away at your psyche um, for months of waiting on your appointment. How many, would you say, how many elective surgeries, uh, amputations do you do or have you done? Maybe you can count them on your fingers and toes that if it's a well, true elective. Well, unfortunately, more than that, um, 
but I say, you know, in a year, uh, you know, there's a handful, right? Three yeah. or four a, hand, a year. Yeah. And then maybe that number again in, in situations where it's really not elective, right? Maybe they've got an oncologic cancer problem that, that you know, necessitates the amputation or some other medical reason why the amputation is really necessary. Um, but the purely elective ones, it's just, it's not many. It's a handful of a handful a year, maybe. Yeah. Two or three, four. Okay. I remember vividly, and it, this was probably, I probably knew before I left your office that I was going to um, go with you no matter what the second opinion stated. And, and truly, and, and you don't know this, but when you decided to do this one thing while I was in your appointment, you kind of sold me on the fact that you believed in the process and you wanted me to be totally educated so that I could make the best call on this. But you called our friend David Banks over at the Limb Center in the midst of our appointment. And, and for those of you listening, that that speaks volumes because you really can't go into amputation without having some sort of peer consult with someone who's been there. You really shouldn't. First, you want to surround yourself with the right people. Second, you want to surround yourself with the amputees that are successful so you can see what success looks like. And for me, seeing him, and then I also met another young lady, go-getters. I, I tell people this all the time, that the, the two things I gleaned from David and this other young lady was... Their attitude was stellar about their situation. They controlled it. It didn't control them. And they had a drive to do more and be more. And they um, had goals, like true goals set. Not like, oh, someday I'm going to walk. Like, I'm going to be doing this by this date set. And I've never been really good at just setting dates on myself. And, and that's helpful. Why did you do that right there? Uh, yeah, well, so it... Uh, as, as beneficial as it was, I guess, for you, it, it wasn't done really consciously because of that necessarily. But I think for me, it's just, it's helpful sometimes to have those conversations while I'm, I'm with the patient in the room, because sometimes uh, as we're talking, meaning David and I, um, and I think he's maybe going to be on a separate podcast with you. And, and so I'm not going to go too much into his story, sort of a tease for a future podcast, but um, <laughs> You know, as, as someone who's worked in the in the industry in the field for a number of years, but also lives it daily as an amputee himself. As I'm having that conversation, sometimes you know there are certain things about a patient or questions he may have, or bits of information the patient wants to make sure he's aware of that that can just be easily communicated sort of there on the spot. And I know that that connection has been made as opposed to you know trying to circle back at another time. Uh, I just think the more we kind of huddle and can be on the same page as a group and as a team, as opposed to having sort of separate conversations at different times in different environments, the more successful we are at making sure everyone has the best information. Yeah. Well, and when you think of it and in, in the realm of, of, of why I'm doing like these types of interviews with you and, and yeah, David will be next week with Randy. It's really important that whether you did that for any specific reason, except to make sure things happen right there speaks volumes because you wanted to make sure that connection was made. And it actually proved to be very beneficial because in the couple of weeks that followed, I had talked to him a couple of times. I'd gone to see him, see what that was all about. Cause it's funny to me now, it's very second nature to be an amputee and to see my limb, but I'll forget going in. He was like one of the first people I ever met he was the first person I met, I think. And it's just awkward. Like, you're like, this isn't my life. This isn't me. <laughs> this can't be my life. This is not what it was meant to be. This is, you know, you start 
you're, it's a it's very surreal feeling to all of a sudden be around that kind of a world to go in and see prosthetics. And you're like, wow, like this is, this is becoming more tangible. It used to be a thought, then it became a conversation with you and I, and then it was m- more tangible when I went there. But a couple weeks after my appointment with you, I went for a second opinion. Interestingly enough, I had a couple second opinions <laughs> and then one of them really wanted to fix me, you know, God bless him. He wanted to fix me and I'm a nice person. So I allowed him to try one thing with me that took it like ate up another week of my life or two weeks of my life. And then to circle back with him. And of course it didn't help. Uh, I literally had tried everything under the sun before I came to you with this request. And it's really hard to explain that to somebody who doesn't know you. That's the hardest part about starting over with another doctor is you, they don't know you, you have to relay eight years of medical and you try to remember it all, but you, you may forget some stuff. But when I went to the other person, I know everything happens for a reason. That is my true belief. I have faith. My faith has led me to a point of success here. But this other doctor had told me after seeing my range of motion of about maybe 20 degrees total at this point in time, said, you will never walk again. When you're still trying to decide if this is the right route, I kept my stuff together in his office. I smiled and he's like, but I'm sure you'll prove me wrong. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I will. And I walked out and I remember getting to my car and sobbing. And I was, I mean, that just, I had already was struggling with the ups and downs of, is this the right thing? Can I really, can someone really take my leg off? When you think of the physical aspect of actually losing your leg, it's, it's frightening to have someone tell you that and, and throw a seed of doubt. All you need is one little seed that can grow. And I called your office right then and there in in the parking lot. And I talked to your front office person and she said, well, he actually has an appointment in like an hour. I'm like, I'll take it. So you guys got me in that day when I was not in a good place. And then the call after that was, as I'm driving to your office, I called David. He picked, I said, David, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. He, he called me back right away. And I told him what it was said. And if I hadn't had that connection because of what you had done the first appointment, I would be in a very different place, I think, because he was talking me down from that ledge. He's like, seriously, you've seen me, you've met me. I played basketball. You don't even think twice about that. Don't, don't even. And that, that made me kind of like, you know, the grit came out, how to to fight through some of this stuff. And that's why I said, I think that that was to light a fire under me, almost instead of making me swing the wrong way, it pushed me harder. Um, I'm stubborn. Yeah. Ask my husband, very (laughs) stubborn. And I want people to know that because you're going to have one doctor that says, yeah, this is the right path. Another doctor tell you this, this isn't going to work for you. And you have to have enough confidence in yourself and be around the right people, get your right circle of friends, family support, medical staff that can really be there to say it's okay. So I got to your office and I was not going to say anything. Just so you know, this Veronica came in she goes, how are you doing? I'm like, well, not so good. She goes, what? And I told her what happened. She goes, oh, you need to tell doctor. I'm like, I'm not going to say that, you know, doctor code. I'm not going to talk bad about another doctor. And she goes, no, no, he wants to hear this. And I did tell you, and you went right into reassuring me. Yeah. That everything was going to be okay. Um, have you ever experienced that where you've had someone come in and it's been that something like that has been thrown, a wrench has been thrown into what you think is going to be a good situation. And someone's come in kind of freaked out or is that? Yeah, yeah sure. It ha- you know, 
Yes, is the short answer. It does it happen a lot? No, uh, and thankfully it doesn't, right? Because that would really make for long days in the office. Uh-huh. Um, I think by and large, um, those of us in the orthopedic community see things similarly. But yeah, every now and again, you'll get you know different opinions that that seem to be coming from left field, and you know sometimes, in fairness to with the world that we live in, right? Uh, there's there's some element of medicine that's always kind of designed around covering your backside. And so at times I think doctors will say things, you know, as, as sort of like a, Hey, a worst case scenario, this is what you can expect. And, and I think, and, and I'm not saying this is your case particularly, but, but I think where it's rooted, right. Is that, is that this, this kind of this deep seated need to ensure patients understand really what the worst case scenario could be as you embark on any particular, you know, treatment option. Right. And, and I think either the message is sent in such a way or received in such a way that, that that's really what the patient hears is the primary message, right? Regardless, in, in your particular case, yeah, I mean, it, it does happen from time to time. And that's where you have to really just rely on your own experience, those are around you uh, as well, uh, that support you and their experience as well. And say, look, you know, I, while that is a possibility, the overwhelming odds are that you'll do much better and have a much different outcome and um, focus on the positive, recognizing that, that there are some things that, that can spiral out of control and, and you may find yourself in that, in that really bad place that no one else wants to, you know, to, to, to be in or talk about, but, but try to focus on the positive and, and then go forward from there. Okay. After having seen me that first appointment, then the next appointment, then this third appointment, that's when we finally decide, okay, I'm, I'm scheduling. That was, that was the day, actually. What factors led you to believe in my case with all that I had been through for so many years that this could actually work for me? What, what factors does someone need for this to kind of be a successful? Yeah, so we've talked on some of them already, which is mm-hmm. having really felt like you've exhausted all options. And this is, you know, not anyone's sort of first, second or third choice, right? But when you have gone through option, you know, one through option 10, and you've tried everything not once, but twice and multiple times, and you're still not only having pain, which you were having, um, but a huge thing, I think in your case was just the functional limitations, right? The knee wouldn't bend, it was stiff. And you were not just dealing with pain, but functionally couldn't achieve your goals and wanting to do things you wanted to do. So there were sort of two things going on. It wasn't just a pain issue or just a function issue. It was both. And you'll notice, right, as you brought up and for the listeners, right, that this was not like something that we talked about and then decided upon and then scheduled on day one, right? There were several meetings that took place and appointments back and forth and talking and and I need you to visit with some people and get a sense of what goes on behind the curtain, right? When all of a sudden you enter the world of an APT and ask yourself, could I live in this world? And could I deal with some of these things that now I'm going to have to deal with? And maybe the things you don't even think about that affect someone's life as an APT. I mean, no one would go, well, a few people probably would really go down to a car lot by a car um, without seeing or test driving it. And while it's, impossible to really test drive what it's like to live as an APT. We can at least allow you to sit in the car and try to get a sense of really what that's going to be like to the best we can. 
And so these are things that happen right over, over several appointments and over weeks and months usually. And if someone is still committed and I think is motivated, that's the key, right? Is, is as you've experienced, it's not just operation done, right? There's a lot. In fact, most of the work happens after the operation and, and, and you recognize that and are motivated. I think that's the key. I think that's, that, that plays so much into, you know, eventual outcomes and how people deal with this, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally. Um, that if there isn't that, if, if there isn't that buy-in and that understanding on the patient's perspective, then it's, it's, it's going to be very difficult. And, and, and secondary to that is having good family support or social support, whether that's friends, community, church, neighbor, whatever it is, right. There's gotta be that support too, because it's, it's a difficult road to travel all by yourself. It is it, just even day-to-day tasks, but then the, the mental thing that just can get in the way. And if you don't have someone that can pull you out of those moments at times, I mean, we all face them. Um, I would like to say that I didn't, but of course there's always those days where you're like, is this really going to be every day, the rest of my life? Those first few weeks were tough. You know, they push you in directions you never knew you could go afterwards. I know you, you do after an amputation, people come back, they see you, you check the wound, you take out the, the staples, whatever. What have you noticed? Like I've stayed connected with you for one way or another, uh, just so the listeners know, like I, a year after my amputation, I signed up to do a 10 K uh, at the rock and roll Phoenix for St. Jude. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty open. I just was like, Hey, anybody want to join me at their office? And I know Dr. Cummings wanted to, but he actually had the weekend where he was, uh, had to be a, a dad and be there and, and had some things going on with his family, but he still owes me. He said he was gonna, he was gonna do some running with me, but he also had, um, uh, Mary actually, uh, I'd say did the run with me, but it was mostly walking. Cause I was still changing. My limb was changing even throughout that, that 10 K I stopped three or four times to fix my socket. So I'm just thankful I finished because that was painful, but I did it. But that's another, uh, a key that, you know, that you've got um, people that are not just one and done and, and they've moved on. You guys have been there when people do come back in for their checkups and stuff. And I'm sure you probably see a multitude of personalities that come in and it, depending on why they got their amputation, whether it's because of cancer, whether it was vascular, whether it was accident, whether it was elective, what do you notice in people? What's the trend for people that are thinking that this might be their pathway? What should they be doing afterwards to ensure some successes? What have you noticed in personalities that are successful afterwards and maybe not so successful? <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, well, I think people that um, just a positive outlook, I, I think, you know, f- trying to focus on the positive as opposed to always dwelling on the negative, right? The positive being, look, this is an opportunity for me to turn a page and, and get on to maybe brighter days is a much different perspective than someone constantly focusing in the rearview mirror saying, uh, you know, I've had this horrible problem and now I don't have a leg and woe is me. No one downplays the significance of this. And there's always empathy that goes out to those people, but having the positive outlook on this process as a gateway to better things ahead, I think is, is probably the biggest 
single thing that will enable people to have a good outcome as opposed to always looking back saying, you know, this sucks. Um, look at what I've had to deal with, you know, all the things that have gone wrong. And while all that is true, I think looking forward and trying to see the positive in this is, is the biggest thing. I think it's funny because the more I talk to people in the medical field, um, the more I realize that amputation may, ironically, how it is such a physical difference in our bodies, it is the most mental game possible. Yeah. Like yeah. we can all get away with having, I mean, you see success stories all the time. These people that rise from no arms, no hands, maybe both legs are gone. And yet they've, they're accomplishing things that people with everything don't. And it's, it's just, it doesn't matter what you have or were born with or don't have or whatever, but it, it's your mental game. And it is, that is a common thread that I am now seeing in everyone I'm talking to, whether it's last week with Mike Coots and his shark attack, he could be afraid to be back in the water. Instead, he's in the water, in the deep, all over the world, feet from great whites in his face, taking photographs. Yeah. I'm like, and I asked Amazing. him, do you, do you ever look back when you serve? He goes, there's times. Yeah. No, he goes, I'm not going to lie. Like, it's not like, just like, cause I mean, as, as a city girl from Illinois and I started surfing, that was one of the things that I wanted to do within that year. Um, I figured, well, one leg down, big deal. I can, I've, I've made it this far. If they take the other leg, I know I can do it now. <laughs> like I'm already <laughs> over that hump. And yeah. so I was able to get in with less fear than I've ever had about surfing and being in the ocean. Um, but I just can't imagine having had that kind of attack, not thinking it could happen again. And, 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 it's all his mental game. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just has a great outlook. And like you said, if you look back, you, you could play the pity party. You could, you could struggle with that all your life and want people to cater to you, but all that's doing is disabling you. And, and amputation isn't to me, isn't a disability. Actually, I get out of my car. I go running through the parking lot faster than most people are walking. And, and yeah. I'm very fortunate for that. But I also do believe that that's, that was my mental game, my attitude, um, and like any muscle, I think my, my mental game had to really strengthen through all this. And, and in some, and, in some, in some respects, I think that may be even harder for the people that are looking at this from an elective standpoint. You know, if you are on your way somewhere in the car and you get in a bad accident and you don't know what happens, but you wake up two days later and you've lost your leg. I mean, that's horrible. Yes. But you also recognize it really wasn't, you didn't have a say in the matter. Right. And so there are times as a, as a patient who looked at this from an elective standpoint where you were going through tough times or dark days and you recognize, you know, this was a decision ultimately I made, right. No one pushed me into this corner. And I think it'd be really easy for you to get down on yourself. Right. And to start allowing that negativity to creep in. And so I think those are people that, that probably could potentially struggle more with that issue than, than others. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I remember going into my surgery going, man, you know, I, I, I don't know much about surgery, but, you know, you're cutting off an entire leg. Um, what happens if I bleed to death and die? And I chose this and I leave my husband and my kids. I mean, that was yeah. one of the biggest hurdles mentally I had to get through. And, and for those that don't know my story, I scheduled my surgery in September of 18 and had it in December. <laughs> That was a long time to wait and think, and it was, it was appropriate. Um, I grew immensely with the time I was given. There were moments of, of 
crying or angst. There was times I went and saw my pastor and just hashed some things out, lots of prayers on my part. And then I came to the realization that I believed that this was the path that was already set forth for me. And when I realized that, yes, I had to actually elect to do it. I believe that that was ultimately where all these eight years was leading to anyways. And once I released myself to that, I was able to then start focusing on the future versus what, what would happen if, what happens if, and um, yeah, uh, spending those times thinking about it was, was no picnic. I mean, it was, it, it was character building actually. It really was um, having made that choice. I believe that that has led me um, to excel in the same respect, because if I chose to do this, then I better darn well live my life that I said I wanted to live. Like yeah. it didn't let me off the hook. It actually put me on the hook. Yeah. I, Cause there is no way anybody in my family wants to hear me complain about my life now. Cause they're just going to throw back to me Well, you chose to do it. So there has not been a day of complaining in this house. There's, like I said, there's been a couple of times maybe in the shower where I'm like, do I have to put this liner on every day? Ugh, you know, but there, you can't complain. If you make this choice, then you have to be 100% all in and you'd be surprised on what you can accomplish when you're 100% mentally all in, you know? That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, this is a procedure that to state the obvious, right? There is no going back. Um, and so you commit, you commit. And then you're right, you push your chips in the middle of the table and you're all in. And it has to be not just physically, but it has to be mentally, emotionally, everything. And if you do, and if patients do and people do, I think that they'll be much more successful than trying to sort of keep one eye in the rearview mirror. Very true. So I have to ask, this isn't this wasn't something I was originally going to ask, but I'm I'm curious. One, I, I could never do the job that you do. <laughs> I see blood and I'm like, oh. But what is the, the best thing for you when you get to do something like you did for me? What, is that what fuels you? Is that what keeps pushing you forward? Because that's got to be really tough on you too, especially when it's oncology patients or someone where, I mean, what drives you to be able to do those all the time? Because that's just Yeah, well, curious. you know, that's, um, it's interesting you say that. So funny story, when I was in college, I was at a, uh, I was in a class, it was sort of some pre-med, like introduction to medicine class, and um, they had different medical doctors from the community from different specialties come in, and they would talk about what it is they do, and one day, a, a plastic surgeon came in, and he was kind of a, not a, not a cosmetic plastic surgeon, but someone who did a lot of sort of traumatic reconstructions, and he starts showing these slides of, you know, some pretty, you know, sort of gnarly things, right? Um, pe people that have facial wounds and, you know, car accidents and stuff like that. And he, he prefaces his whole thing by saying, if, any, if anyone starts to feel queasy, lightheaded, uneasy, whatever, do not get up. Just put your head down, stay in your desk. Don't try to, whatever, just stay put. <laughs> so sure enough, right? Like 10 minutes, 20 minutes into this, I start feeling a little weird. Right. And I, I, I'm like, I don't know what's going. And, and I, the thought occurs to me, you know, if I just get up, get outside some fresh air, maybe a drink of water, I'll be fine. So what do I do? I do the exact opposite thing that, that he told us to do. I stand up and, and no sooner than I stood up, I just completely fall over, passed out. And I'm in this class, right. That's 
that's we're all like going into medicine at least we think we are <laughs> and 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 i'm even thinking about going into some surgical specialty and i'm passing out uh, because someone's showing you know surgical images on a slide projector so <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, my i'm not sure what it was that day or or but you know the answer to your question is it may sound odd but you know, we, we do take care of patients that have bad problems and difficult things, but the way people to, to watch the vast majority of them handle their problems and to face them and to watch, you know, family loved ones and friends rally behind them and to see them rely on their faith is, you know, I tell people all the time, I, I am rewarded more um, from taking care of and seeing patients go through some of these things, then I feel like I ever give back. And, you know, it's, and I tell my wife and family this all the time. I mean, always grateful um, for just the simple things, right? Because I'm reminded every day, whether it's in clinic or in the hospital, in the operating room, that, you know, fortunately I don't have to deal with some of the things that I'm helping patients through. And so I'm grateful every day for the simple things and it keeps me grounded. It gives me, I think, just awesome perspective on life. And, um, and so ultimately it's me, I think that benefits most from all this. And it's actually, a, it's just a real honor to be part of that journey for patients and, and with patients. I love it. I love it. Yeah. You, I'm glad you didn't pass out when you were doing my leg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've somehow gotten over that fear. I don't, I, I'm not sure what, what exactly I, I would, is going on. I would day. hope so. Yeah. Okay. So one li- last little uh, question. It, let's, let's just say that I'm hoping this reaches the right audience that people that are like on the fence, they think that this is the only route that's left for them. They're really juggling it. They're not sure if this is the right way, the wrong way. What advice would you give someone that was in my boat before that's coming in or trying to find the right person, what advice would you give them for advocating for themselves and what they, should they be doing proactively to make this decision? Um, good question. You know, I think people feeling empowered to advocate for themselves, just, just realizing that they can and should is number one. And I think many times people, you know, visit a healthcare professional and, they may not question or wonder if what they were told is the right thing. They just assume that it is. And most of the time, fortunately, I think it is. I think there's rare cases out there where people aren't getting good medical advice or treatment. But that, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't and shouldn't as, as someone in the healthcare market ask questions, right? Get a second opinion. And if you, if you are seeing a doctor that has a problem with you getting a second opinion, then I would probably not go back to that doctor because it just tells you that either they're not confident in their own advice um, or they're too myopic or narrow-sighted to think that, you know, someone else may have a reasonable alternative or suggestion. And you don't want someone taking care of you that, that suffers from either one of those. Um, and I routinely tell people, you know, to go get second opinions. And if they ask, should I, I say, absolutely. Because again, if, if you don't feel comfortable with the prescribed sort of plan of treatment as a patient, then things are probably not going to go as well as they could or should. And so ask questions. If you're unsure about why certain advice or recommendations are being given, ask, don't just accept, oh, just because that's the way it is, or, you know, some canned generic answer. And if if someone isn't willing to spend the time with you to talk about those things, 
then I would probably go somewhere else. Um, I don't think that's unreasonable for, for patients to just want to be able to have some of those discussions. Alternatively, you know, if, 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 if someone's in a hurry to have you make that decision and wants to get this procedure scheduled right away, barring some life-threatening thing, that should probably be a red flag too, because as you've highlighted, these are the big decisions and they're decisions that of necessity take time to make and to become comfortable with. And so recognize it too, that, that, that this, what we're talking about today, amputation is a viable option in the year 2021. We're, we're blessed to live in the time that we do. And um, as you've experienced technology that is available to us now is amazing. Um, and it hasn't always been there. So, you know, if we back up even 10 years ago, right, or certainly 15, 20 years ago, we're having a much different conversation about, you know, what can you expect post-surgery? Now it's amazing. And to see people doing and accomplish the things that they do um, is, is just transformative. We're also now, and I think we've talked about this, but we're yeah. also um, looking at technology that's out there that currently exists. And we're now looking to adopt it here locally at my institution as sort of a regional center for this, but it's, it's anchoring prosthetic devices to the bone itself so that patients aren't weight bearing through a stump um, where a lot of that pressure is being transmitted through the soft tissues, but, but rather to the bone, which is really how we're designed right as human beings. And so those are yet some new and exciting things that are still on the horizon. Again, it's, it's technology that was sort of pioneered in Europe and is making its way over. And I know at Walter Reed Medical Center has been, been utilized now for, for some time and we're starting to you know, roll that out to the masses and, and to look forward to that being an option it, you know, for certain patients, right? That may have difficulty with traditional uh, amputation uh, stumps and sockets and, and, and those sorts of things. So we, we live in a day and age where there's so much out there. And unlike, you know, the, the person who told you, you'll likely never walk again. I, I think that for 99% of patients out there, there's so much more out there and, and available and life to live. And uh, it's, it's just about finding the right time, making sure it's the right thing. And, and then, like you said, just committing to it and pushing all chips into the table. Nice. Well, I want to say that the, I wanted you on here because I wanted people to get a glimpse into what I believe is a fantastic doctor who has amazing bedside manners. And you've always been there. You've never turned your back on me. You always had time for me. I've gone in for little things here and there. And even just what last week, just to get some thoughts on another avenue with some nerve issue that I'm having again. But um, again, it's just another little part of my journey and I'm okay with that as long as it doesn't linger, but um, I appreciate you being on. I do have one more thing I want to do to lighten it up and sure. uh, to let people get to know you a little bit better. It's just a, a really quick speed round of this or that. You, I'm going to give you two things and you're going to just tell me which one kind of resonates with you. Let's get to know you really fast, okay? Yeah. All right, here we go. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Winter or summer? Summer. Running or biking? Biking. Morning person or night owl? Morning. Comedy or drama? Comedy. Pizza or salad? Pizza. <laughs> uh, the desert or forest? Oh, ouch. Ooh, boy, I'll say desert just because that's where I am. All right. Ocean or the mountains? Mountains. Are you a homebody or a mingler? Homebody. 
a tent or hotel? Tent. Country or rock and roll? Rock and roll. Sweet. All right. Thanks for playing along with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate I <laughs> that. You did really good. I'll give you an A. Well, there you have it, Dr. Judd Cummings, orthopedic surgeon and the surgeon who did my amputation back in 2018. Coming up next week, we have Randy West and David Banks, the prosthetist that I have been using for the past two years. After that, uh, physical therapy and a plastic surgeon who did TMR surgery on me this past December. Now to move on to our call to action. This is a big one. And this one is really directed towards those of you that are in where you're thinking you might be going through amputation. There are a couple things that I would ask you to make sure you do. And this was advice I had gotten partially from people in my medical circle and partially I learned on my own. First thing you're going to do, you need to talk to your insurance company. Hopefully you have insurance. Um, amputation is the surgery, yes, but your insurance company is going to be very vitally important to you after amputation because you're going to have to go through a prosthetist who is going to make sockets and get you linings and get you the leg or the arm, the robotics that you need to get back to a normal like life. Insurance companies it's we've found have been really a struggle and if you don't cover your bases you get to that point of amputation and then you're stuck in a situation where your insurance company doesn't cover much and then you're really um, at a loss because prosthetics are not cheap so please do your due diligence please check with your insurance company figure out how you're going to not just afford the surgery but all the stuff that's going to happen afterwards, like physical therapy, prosthetic visits, new prosthetics, new parts, when things break down, when you have to get things um, fixed or shifted because your body changes, something that you don't know about until you're kind of in it, is that the first couple of years after amputation, your limb is changing all the time. In um, The muscles are atrophying and... Um, the dimensions change and you have to get different fits for your prosthetic. Second part of the call to action. Research a couple prosthetists in your area and go and ask to talk with them. Don't just stick with one. Go with a couple and also make sure they work with your insurance company. Um, I had visited two. The first one. Um, I really thought it was great. I didn't know any others, but they seemed to be great. They were invested. Their body language was everything um, important to me that, that I was important to them. And as I was walking out, I talked to the secretary and they found out or they told me that they do not take my insurance. So I had to really think about that. And then I was really worried because I wasn't sure how many prosthetists were really in our area. And then when I did talk to Dr. Cummings and he sent me to um, the Limb Center here in Phoenix, I went and I talked with them and found out that they did take my insurance, which was great. And um, I really liked that my doctor 
worked hand in hand with them. And that way they can communicate much more fluidly about my situations. So that's a really important go talk to prosthetists, find out where you feel comfortable, feel that you fit in, feel that they are investing in you, that you are special to them. And um, that will help you with the third step, which is then talking to them about getting peer-to-peer visits taken care of. You want to meet up with other amputees before you decide on this. Do not go in blindly. I knew no one, absolutely no one who was an amputee ever in my life. So this was a whole new world that was opened up to me. And it was frightening at first because it was so different, a different group of people, a different feeling. Uh, Now that I am that, I don't feel different. (laughs) I know I look different, but I don't feel different. So it's kind of unique to be a part of a community that at once was something that I only saw from a distance. And now I'm in the middle of. But the peer-to-peers are extremely important. Um, They helped me figure out how to be successful after the amputation. And you do want to make sure you get with someone who has successes. You do not want to get with a negative Nelly person who is just a total downer and complaining and pity party. You want to see several, not just one, not even two. If you can see at least three different people that are successful as amputees living their best life, you will be able to find a thread that connects them all. For me, and I think you will too, the same things, is that their attitude was amazing. They had a great outlook on life. They were happy people. They were active people. The other thing that I noticed with the people I met was they all set goals for themselves. And I meant real goals, not just getting to walk someday, or maybe someday I'll try running again, or wouldn't it be neat if I could jump rope? They set dates. They said, by this date, I want to be doing this. And by this time next year, I want to be do have done this, this, and this. If you do not have clear set goals, it'll be very easy to get distracted by pain or setbacks. And you don't want that because that then becomes a whole mental game, which then becomes an emotional game. And then you're dug yourself into a really deep hole that is very hard to get out of. So call to action this week. If you think you are a candidate for amputation, talk to your insurance company or get insurance and talk to them. Make sure you research which insurance insurance companies are the best. Go to a couple different prosthetist offices, talk to them. Make sure you get to talk with the person who would be working hand in hand with you. Get to know that person, not their assistant, not a secretary. You want to talk with the person that's going to be doing your fittings, taking care of you, because what I was told, and I can vouch for it now, This is someone who's going to be in your life for 30, 40 years, if you're lucky. If they're still in the business and you're doing well with them, that person is going to be by your side. And then thirdly, make sure you do several peer-to-peer visits with other amputees who can give you insight to day-to-day workings, um, pitfalls, um, why reinvent the wheel. 
help have them help you see where they would do things differently um, and then share the things that have worked well for them. That'll give you a real glimpse as much as you can get into the life of being an amputee. As Dr. Cummings said, you know, most people don't go and buy a car without seeing it and test driving it. Well, as an amputee, you really can't test drive being an amputee. It's, it's an all or nothing thing. But you can get in the car and get a feel. And that's what a peer-to-peer will do or talking to a prosthetist will do. As much as you can get yourself around that environment and those people and that community, the better handle you'll have on what you're really going to expect and see afterwards. And then the rest is going to be up to you. How you handle it, your attitude, your support system, that is going to be the make or break of a successful future for you as an amputee. So until next time, be healthy, be happy, be you.